in, in ninth grade, I had two momentous events happen to me. First momentous event, I went to band camp, I came home, I get in the car, my dad says to me, son, I've got bad news. Okay. I got fired from my job while you were at band camp, and we don't have any money, so we're going to move to Las Vegas, where your step-grandfather and grandmother are, and I'm going to go work for your step-grandfather, and we're moving in a week. And I was just about to start my freshman year in the town that I had grown up in since third grade. Hartford City, Indiana. You're going to take a small town Indiana boy and transplant him to Las Vegas? In 1982? With big hair? I even had big hair. Yes, I think even the guys used hairspray in the early 80s. Okay, so that was... But I remember feeling, oh God, where are you? Why are you doing this to me? Don't you care? And then the second momentous event was that I wanted to uh, become boyfriend-girlfriend with Amy. And that's her real name. I've told you the story before where, we, where I did the whole... Because back then you didn't have cell phones and you didn't text. So the way you asked was you sent an intermediary, a mutual friend. I like... Hey, Cammy, I like Amy. Would you go see if Amy likes me? Da, 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 da. I did that in gym. I wanted to have a girlfriend. And Amy said, no. Rejection, rejection, okay? And I remember feeling like, does anybody love me? And so if you had talked to the Max Vanderpool of 1982, he was messed up. He was feeling like God was just far off, distant, didn't care. He was feeling alone. He was feeling rejected. The funny thing is, the 43-year-old Max Vanderpool of today, I look back and I'm like, really? You lived in Las Vegas for three months and then your parents couldn't take it anymore so they moved back. Wah! God's not going to bat for you? Wah! And then the 43-year-old Max Vanderpool today looks back at Amy saying no and I th- say, thank God! Because at age 14, 15, I didn't understand women. I still don't understand Women, I would have totally blown that relationship because I had just come out of a relationship in which Shelly, my then girlfriend, would do these questions. So if I was your wife and I was running for president, but a man was running for president, but he was more qualified, who would you vote for? And so I gave the 15-year-old answer. I'd vote for the person most qualified. I didn't understand that when a woman asks a question, there's a question behind the question. I still sometimes don't understand that. Ask Jenny, okay? So what, she, what Shelley was really asking was, do you believe me? Do you love me? Are you going to support me? Not who are you going to vote for in an election. Okay, so no, but... The Max Vanderpool in 1982, my feelings were all over the map. I felt rejected, and I felt like God wasn't going to bat for me. And it's just weird, weird, weird. In 2003, I remember feeling afraid because I felt like God wanted me to start a church, but I didn't want to start a church because I didn't go to a seminary that taught how to church plant. I didn't take any church planting courses. I didn't even take any church growth courses. I didn't even take any counseling courses. I don't even know why I went to seminary. What was that? What was the point of that? It was like three and a half years of my life. What did I learn? I don't know. 
I studied Hegel. That comes in handy. (laughs) Some of you are like, who's Hegel? Well, he's like this German philosopher. Let's not get into that. Okay, so I remember feeling afraid and and afraid of that I was going to mess up or take the wrong steps. And the funny thing is, eight years later, I want to go back to that Max Vanderpool and say, dude, you are so afraid of all the wrong things. Let me tell you what you should be afraid of. <laughs> da, 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 da. That's not what you think, okay? Emotions and feelings are funny, aren't they? They just kind of happen, and then before you know it, it's like the end of Star Trek where this singularity is created. It's a kind of a black hole, and a black holes have huge gravitational pull. And so if you're near the gra- black hole, do you know what happens to you? It sucks you in. Okay, emotions and feelings can be like that. They can be like a gravity well that, you know, you're like, I've just given her all she's got. You know, (laughs) I need more. It's not enough. Okay, so uh, from time to time, I will get a couple that will sit on the couch in front of my desk and they will say something like this about their feelings. Pastor Max, I, I just don't I just don't feel in love anymore or. Or one of them will say, I, mm, I just don't have feelings for her anymore. And then they'll want to get lawyers and then they'll want to, you know, one of them will move out. And, and emotion and feelings are driving everything. I mean, there were things in the relationship, but the language that they use is language of feelings. Um, I knew a young woman years ago and uh, she did, uh, she committed a sin and it was a sexual sin, which by today's standards, you'd go like, Really? <laughs> But she thought that everyone in church was talking about her. She was convinced of this. And no matter how many conversations I had with her, I could not convince her that, honey, when you come into the room and they're talking, they're not talking about you. They don't even see you. They're too worried about them to, to see you, okay? It's, it's okay. But she was just convinced every time. They're talking about me. They're, you know, they're saying things about me. And she felt the same, th- same thing at school. So you know what she did? She quit the church. And transferred because she felt that way. And the funny thing is, her feelings were not true representation of reality. Reality was something completely different than what she felt. Emotions and feelings are powerful things, aren't they? Some of you guys are like, amen, I'm married. Don't tell me about that. You know, trying to control what you feel is like trying to control a wave at the beach. You can't. It's going to go where it goes. It's a wave. You know, and emotions are kind of like that. Emotions, by the way, in case you've never been taught anything biblically, emotions are neither holy nor evil. They're part of the package of being human. Hi, welcome to the human race. You have emotions, even those of you who are Spock. You have emotions, too, even though you disregard them. Right. Okay. Emotions are neither good nor bad. They're just part of the package of being human. And part of being human, if you have emotions, means that these emotions are contaminated, corrupted and warped by the fall, warped by sin, just like everything else about being human is warped and corrupted and damaged because of the fall and because of sin. Um, If I could if I could kind of describe American life as a pastor when it comes to emotion, I feel like Americans, Americans make decisions in life based on two things. One is the cultural current. 
And if the cultural current is go to college, okay, I'm going to go to college. If the cultural current is get married and, and buy a house by the time you're 25, then I'll get married and buy a house by the time I'm 25. If the cultural current is spend more money than you have, then I'll spend more money than I have. You know, it's just, just it's the cultural current. It's kind of like the Gulf Stream. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. But in Nemo, you just hop in and then boom, it carries you along. You don't have to do anything. And that's kind of how I feel one aspect of us Americans. We just hop in the current and boom, it kind of carries us where it wills. And the second thing is Americans, we, we get carried away by our emotions. Our emotions kind of drive decisions. I don't feel in love anymore. I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like they appreciate me at this job, so I put in for a transfer. I mean, it's weird. We'll have these feelings, and we'll make big-time decisions based on the feelings. And the feelings may be representative of reality, or they may not be representative of reality. It's the oddest thing, isn't it? And yet we let feelings drive us. Well, today I want to kind of put a stake in the ground and, and to lay my cards out on the table on the continuum if there's the uber-emotional people and then there's the Spocks in life. Hi, I'm Max. I'm a Spock. <laughs> Not that that surprises any of you, okay? So, you know, in the efforts of disclosure, you know, that's where I work on, on the continuum of emotion, right? Um, but the stake in the ground I want to put is simply this. I want you to trust God no matter what. And when you're in doubt, go with what God says, not what you feel, right? Go with what God says. When in doubt, go with what God says, not with what you feel. What? Yep, let's wade into that. And to do that, I'm going to be in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at the story of Lazarus. And we're actually going to come back to this story in three weeks on July 29th. All right? So this is the story of Lazarus. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, John chapter 11 is what's called a narrative hinge. Everything before it kind of hinges and then it turns course in chapter 12. And John goes in kind of a new direction. So chapter 11 is this giant coming along, coming along, coming along, 11. And then it turns. That's what chapter 11 does, okay? And so it's this narrative hinge. One of the things that happens after chapter 11 is you don't see any big miracles anymore. So what's going on? Especially since chapter 11 is about a huge miracle, all right? Chapter 11, verse 1, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Bethany's about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. So it's not very far. It's spitting distance. In the old Roman marking system, it was two markers outside of Jerusalem. Right? And so it's, it's pretty close by. Anytime Jesus was in Jerusalem, he stayed in Bethany. That was his base. And so that's why in the Gospels, Bethany and places around it come up a lot. Because that's where Jesus' base of operations was. That's where he would stay. And so uh, it figures prominently. This particular family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were really good friends of Jesus. In fact, uh, commentators make a point of the fact that um, John simply says, this is the Mary who poured perfume, meaning that everyone in the early church would have gone, oh yeah, Mary, kind of famous. It would be like uh, Andy Griffith just died being Ron Howard. Yes, I worked on the Andy Griffith show. Really? What was it like? 
you know, to, you know, the same thing would have played out in a sense, culture, you know, cultural differences and whatnot. You were, you were Jesus, like, really good friend. What was that like? What was he like? What was, you know, tell me. Okay, so, boom, they're really, really good friends, all right? The delay, Jesus, uh, well, let's get into it. So when Jesus heard about it, verse 4, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for two, the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. So he gets word. They send a messenger. Lazarus is sick. Come. And for whatever reason, he decides to delay going for two days. One thing I want you to know is that Jesus' delay is not what causes Lazarus' death. Um, If you do the anal retentive figure out time kind of a thing, uh, later in the passage we're told that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days when Jesus arrived. So what likely happened was Mary and Martha get this messenger, go find Jesus. This is where he is, go tell him. Tell him to come quick. And either minutes or a few hours after they sent the messenger, Lazarus must, must have died. And so Lazarus died in that culture. You die and you're buried the same day. And so that's one day. And then Jesus stayed two days. And then Jesus took a day to get from where he was to Bethany. So one plus two plus one is four, equaling four days in the tomb. Right, so John's careful to point out some of these details so that you and I go, oh, okay, so Jesus' delay is not what caused Lazarus' death. Right? And then we pick it up in verse uh, 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And you're like, Max, you already explained this. I know. Okay, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, when everyone else rises on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord. I've always believed you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. And then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher's here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to to him. Verse 30, uh, Jesus uh, stayed outside the village and and the... uh, at the place where Martha met him, when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep, so they followed her. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, and here's that phrase again, if only, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I see a lot in those statements. Now, some commentators and things you'll read see a lot more than I see, but they're smarter than I am, so I'll let you read about those guys later. But I know this. There's tremendous power in the phrase, if only. Martha and Mary are making statements to Jesus that have some level of accusation in them, right? Hey, my brother died, and you know what? 
you had been here, man, if, if, if you had been here, that wouldn't have happened. I thought you loved me. I thought you loved him. If only, we use this all the time, if only he hadn't taken that flight. If only I had said goodbye the last time I was there. If only, I mean, I hadn't gotten pregnant. I mean, if only, if only, if only. It's, it's a powerful phrase and it speaks to past regret, past disappointment. And I think part of the emotions that Martha and Mary are feeling, I mean, think about this for a moment. How would you feel if you were in their place? I mean, yes, there's... T- 20 centuries between us and them and cultural differences, but just at a base level today in 2012. Somebody who can do something, who's got the power to stop something tremendously tragic from happening, and they're not there, they're not on the scene, how would you feel? Most of us would feel disappointed, frustrated. Martha mitigates that somewhat in what she's saying to him. She's basically saying, look, you know, I know you didn't show up, but I still, you know, her statements there could be roughly paraphrased as, hey, I want you to know I still believe in you. I'm, I'm disappointed. If only you'd been, you know, if you'd been here, it would have been a different outcome. But I, I'm, still, I'm still with you, still believe in you. And so there are these powerful emotions at play. It's interesting, this story is chock full of emotion and feelings. And the outcome and the way the circumstance pivots has no correlation to what everybody feels. It's one of the oddest things. All right, verse 33, the Bible says this, When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. Okay, so he sees Martha and Mary weeping, and the Bible says a deep anger. So what, you know, anger? Really? Why? Who's he mad at? Is he mad at Mary and Martha? I don't think so. Is he mad at all the family members and friends who have come to mourn? I don't think so. Some commentators say that this anger is at the whole scene, the whole situation. Here are God's people, and they're demoralized, and they're depressed, and they're there's this fundamental, in a sense, lack of hope that he sees playing out. I don't know. But I do know that there's something about what's going on that causes Jesus to respond emotionally. All right? And then verses 38 and following. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, he told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell would be terrible. Now, in in Jewish custom of the time, I've read that after three days, you would go to check on a body just to make sure they were dead. So that, and so John includes this detail in a sense for anybody reading to know what, what's about to happen isn't some weird resuscitation, Lazarus wasn't really dead scenarios. The guy was dead, period. Because they went, they checked on him, yep, still dead. Martha's saying, it's going to stink, dead. Right? So Jesus responded, verse 40, Didn't I tell you you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside, and Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it aloud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they'll believe you sent me. And then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. 
And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Verse 35 to me is another one that's powerful, and I'm going to wrap this up. Then Jesus wept. If you grew up Baptist, that was the first Bible verse you memorized. Jesus wept. Where's my sticker? Where's my ribbon, my candy bar? Jesus wept. John 11:35. What is it? Yep. Jesus wept. Here all over this scene are feelings and emotions. And those of you that have lived life long enough, can extrapolate some of the potential frustration and relational minefields that are at play in a situation like this. Very good friends of the rabbi. And he doesn't show up when he's needed most. And it looks bleak. It looks disappointing. And the level of frustration, the level of feeling. And yet, if you had sat Martha down in that moment before Jesus went to the tomb and said, so how are you right now? What do you mean, how am I right now? Lazarus died. He didn't show. I'm not going to toss my faith aside or anything like that. But you know what? This stinks. And yet, he's brought back to life. He's raised from the dead. And so, I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of emotional energy in this story. And the people in the story, Martha, Mary, um, they have a decision in a sense, and that is, are they going to trust Jesus and trust God, God's intentions, or are they going to trust their feelings and make relational decisions about God based on what they feel or based on who God is and who they've discovered, you know, who he is through, through Jesus' teaching ministry, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's the crux of the matter where you and I sit most of the time in our lives. When we face these situations or circumstances, boss calls us in, we're let go, any number of things. Okay, I'm feeling all these things in here, God, but who are you? Can I count on you? And, and so it's an issue of faith. I think Jesus is weeping. You know, everybody was crying. Martha was crying. Mary was crying. All the relatives and friends were crying. This is the first documented encounter of death that we see Jesus in where Jesus is troubled by it. Now, part of that is because he's probably also thinking about his own death that he's facing in just a short while. But, you know, the, the, widow's, uh, the widow's son of name, raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter, raised from the dead with a simple, wake up, get up, little girl. This one bothers him in a way that the others didn't, or at least according to the gospel accounts. All right, so I want to ask some questions. So we've gotten into the text a little bit. We've talked about emotion. You've got them. I've got them. Here's a couple of questions. Do you know what you're feeling? Those of us who are Spocks in life, here's my word of caution. Feelings are also like icebergs. 20% at the surface, 80% is below. It's the 80% that's below that can sink the Titanic. Okay? Not the 20% that you can see. So what are you feeling? And if you don't know what you're feeling, would you take steps to figure it out? Sometimes I have to rely on Jenny for that in my own life because Jenny's like, you're frustrated. I am not. And then two days later, I realize oh, I'm frustrated about this person or this situation. Boom. But it takes me longer. I call it emo being emotionally handicapped. 
Although I think there's emotionally challenged would probably be the 2012 word, right? Emotionally challenged. Hi, Max. I'm emotionally challenged. Hi, Max. Okay, so there you go. All right. Do you know what you're feeling? That's the first question. And then the second question is, the most consistent feelings that you have, the most consistent emotions that you have, do those indicate that you're mostly under the control of the Holy Spirit? Or as Paul would say, mostly under the control of the sinful nature? And Paul in Galatians reminds us, you know, he lists that fruit of the Spirit, peace, right, is one of those. And, and so are those where emotionally feeling-wise are you most of the time? And that's kind of an indicator of what's at play. And here's why this is important. Feelings change day to day, moment to moment, don't they? You go into work feeling like this is going to be a great day. And 15 minutes into it, you're like, what? Bring out the stormtroopers. <laughs> or extraction, extraction, get me out of here. Right? Feelings change from day to day, moment to moment. And feelings can lie. Feelings can lead you to conclude something that's not true of what's really true in reality. Okay, feelings, uh, sometimes you can feel like uh, everyone's talking about you. You can feel like nobody understands you. You can feel underappreciated. And so what do you do? I'm transferring, I quit or whatever it is. Boom, without maybe necessarily having to talk out with the supervisor or the people. Feelings can drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit and your conscience if you're not careful. And so. Today, am I telling you, set your feelings aside? No, you can't help what you feel. You feel what you feel. But you can help what you do with them and where you go with them. And here's where the rubber meets the road. In this situation, I see not just an example in Martha, uh, but I see an opportunity for you and me. And the opportunity is when you're struggling emotionally, take a moment and do several things. So let me map this out. By the way, Job is the example for this. So if you want to know where to go in the Bible, go to Job. All right? So here's some things. If, if you're mixed up emotionally, first and foremost, once you figure it out, tell God. I love the way Isaiah puts it. I'm just going to tell God because he's omniscient and he knows anyway. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell him what he already knows rather than kind of try and lie to myself because I'm really not lying to him. So I'm just going to be honest. So Boom. You're feeling like God didn't go to bat for you. You'd tell your wife, wouldn't you? You'd tell your husband if you felt that way. Why not tell God? Hey, God, read the Psalms. David did that. One Psalm is, oh, God, you're my rock. You're my fortress. The next Psalm is, you stink. They're about to snuff out my life. Where have you been? You're like, that's schizophrenic. Yeah, those are emotions. Psalms that are emotions, raw, unedited, unedited emotion. All right. So tell God how you feel. There's one thing. Second thing, focus on who God is. Uh, for some of us, these little uh, Bible promise books come in handy because reading through some key verses. Oh, that's right. God is my good heavenly father who will provide my needs. God is someone I can count on to have my best interests at heart. God has adopted me. If I've been born again, I've been adopted into his family. And I am now a favored son, a favored daughter. And truth about yourself. Some of us have emotions about our own self-worth and those kind of things. That's like an entire sermon series right there. 
But again, going back to what God says. And so for you and me, the, when the rubber hits the road, when we're, we have all these emotions stirring in us, is, okay, what do I know about God based on what God says about himself? Or even past trek record I have with him. You know, for me, sometimes if I'm struggling about God's provision, I read the points, the, the, the scriptures that t- tell me I can count on God. Seek first his kingdom. These things will be given to you. I mean, they're passage after passage, but uh, I can also go back and I can go, oh, back in 1988 when I did X and God came through for me that way. Okay, yeah, not only do I know it based on God's truth and God's revelation of himself, I know it experientially because he did that for me in 1988. Okay, so focus on who God is. All right. And the last thing is simply trust him to keep his promises. You're like, well, that's almost like Sunday schoolish. Yeah, it is. It's the hardest thing in the world, and yet that's what God asks of us. I mean, page after page of Scripture, the way I read it, is God more or less saying to humanity, you trust me? Do you trust me? Look at what I've done. Oh, Israel, look at what I did for you. You trust me? People of God, church of God, look at what I did. I became human. I showed you the kind of God that I am through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I died on a cross on your behalf. Do you trust me? Page after page of scripture, okay? So tell God how you feel, focus on who God is, and trust him to keep his promises. This last year, I don't know if it was the wake of uh, losing my dad or whatnot, I had all kinds of emotional struggles, you know? I had feelings that were all over the map. One day I would feel Great. The next day I would feel like, well, God, I can't, you know, where were you? And so I'm, as a Spock, I'm telling you, your feelings can be everywhere. For me, the grounding thing was going back to statements from the Bible. That's right. This is who God is. This is who God is. I can count on him. I can trust him. Okay. I'm going to choose to do that. Even though all my feelings tell me, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with him, but I'm going to trust him. And so that's my challenge to you today.